do get ready to finish our time together in this book. And uh, I, have, I have really been, enjoyed it and been challenged in so many ways. And I hope that God has been speaking to your hearts as we've, we've walked through this uh, precious little book. Less than 50 verses, but they truly are powerful. Jonah chapter 4. I don't know if you remember, but at the outset of this study, we said that this book was not really about Jonah. It's ultimately about God. And we've seen God and his scandalous grace. We've encountered God as he pursues his people, as he pursues this prophet, as he pursues pagans, and has extended his great loving kindness in so many ways. Specifically, this book is about the grace of God. The scandalous grace of God. And one of the things we haven't really done is given an official definition of grace. Grace is one of those words that um, maybe is is really hard to nail down because especially when we're talking about God, is there any way to really capture the the beauty and the glory of what he has done for us and how he has pursued us? I, I do love this definition that I read this week. Grace is that love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with how you've behaved or whether, you, whether or not you deserve it or earned it. It's being loved when you're the opposite of lovable. And throughout the book of Jonah, we've seen God in his scandalous grace pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. And that's how the book finishes. If you found chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're, we looked at 1 through 4 last week, but just for the context, let's start at verse 1. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head and to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. The Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. So we have here, in, in, in the title of our message today, is Scandalous Grace to the Very End. We have here Jonah. He, he goes, he, he sits outside the city, and he's waiting. He doesn't really tell us what he's waiting for, but it appears that he's waiting for Nineveh to mess up. He builds a little shelter for himself, and it looks like he's waiting, just hoping that Nineveh will do something so that God's gracious 
kindness towards them will be reserved and he'll get that justice, that judgment upon them that he's so desperately been looking for. And God comes to him there and the text tells us that God grew up a plant to provide Jonah some shade from that Middle Eastern sun, apparently leafy plant that just thrilled Jonah because now he had some custom-designed shade. And then we see the next day a worm destroying the plant. And Jonah's absolutely devastated. And so God comes to him and speaks to him. I want to just see a couple of things briefly this morning about the text, and specifically about God's grace. God's grace is utterly relentless. We've seen this throughout the book. This has been the theme of Jonah. God's grace continuing to pursue. Just in summary, here's some ways that we've seen God's grace. In in him coming to Jonah in the first place and giving him a mission, giving him a job. Jonah, I want to use you. That's God's grace. In not leaving Jonah in his sin, but in sending a storm to set set forth a series of events to draw Jonah back to himself. We see God's grace in providing a way to rescue the sailors from that storm. We see God's grace in sending the fish to rescue Jonah from drowning. We see God's grace in God hearing Jonah's prayers from the whale. We see God's grace in him giving Jonah a second chance. We see God's grace in him sending someone to the Ninevites, even though they certainly didn't deserve it. We see God's grace in forgiving the Ninevites and relenting from the wrath that he was going to pour out of them. We see God's grace even in Jonah's declaration, sort of begrudging declaration of God's gracious character. In chapter 4, verse 2, I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God. And we see God's grace in pursuing Jonah in his ongoing hard-heartedness. God's grace is relentless. Probably you could give testimony, I hope you could, to the evidence of God's grace pursuing your hearts Maybe even this morning. What God does here in his grace is he comes to Jonah with questions. He asks him a series of three questions. We saw one of them last week. And here he asks him two more in this section in verses 5 through 11. Are you right to be angry? And then he closes in verse 11 with a question. You know, that's, that's just like God. That's one of the ways he pursues people. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember when they had turned their back on him. God came with questions. God's not looking for information. He knows the answers, right? God's looking for their hearts. He did it with Job. He did it, does it all throughout Scripture. God pursues our hearts. And he pursues our hearts with grace. The second thing I want to point out this morning is that God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is sovereign. We touched on this a little bit last week. But, but God, is, God is at work orchestrating things to bring about Jonah's salvation, to bring about Jonah's opening of his eyes. We, we see words of, of God's sovereignty all throughout this book. In chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that God hurled a great wind. He threw a great wind upon the sea. In verse 17 of chapter 1, we see that God appointed a great fish. And here in chapter 4, we see in verse 6, I don't know if you noticed this, all kind of right in a sequence, We see that God appointed a plant for Jonah's shade. Then God, uh, in verse 7, God appointed a worm. And then in verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. God is not distant from what's going on in our life. 
Our God is a sovereign God who is very involved. Our God is a God who appoints worms, who directs worms for goodness sakes. R.C. Sproul once said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if there's even one molecule in this universe that God, over which God is not sovereign, we're in trouble. We, at times, we want to think that we're in control and we like the idea of us being autonomous, but in reality, we don't want God to take his hands off the wheel. We don't want God to step back. Things would be far worse than we could ever even imagine. The Bible tells us that God here is so involved that he's even in the place of appointing worms to accomplish his will. I hope that brings you comfort this morning that whatever you might be going through, your God is there and he is involved. He's doing things behind the scenes that you'll, you and I will never have a, 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 even an inkling of until we get to glory. We need a God like that. For we would not turn to him ourselves. We would not seek him ourselves, Romans 3 tells us. We need a God who is at work drawing us to himself and bringing about our rescue, just like he did with Jonah. And thirdly, we see God's grace in the way that it reveals our idols. God's grace reveals our idols. This book is filled with all kinds of irony and, 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 and quite a bit of humor, intentional, subtle humor. And, and here it tells us in verse 6 that the Lord appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And that last verse of verse 6 is troubling. It says, Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Another translation says, exceedingly glad. Do you know that for the first time in this entire story, Jonah is happy? Jonah is finally happy about something. He's finally glad. And what is it that he's exceedingly glad about? A plant. Some shade. He, he is so far off the reservation that he has just seen an entire city saved by, his, by God's grace. He himself has been rescued from a, a gigantic fish, miraculously. But the first inkling of Jonah's happiness comes when he gets a little shade tree. And you know, I, I, I laughed when I reflected on that this week, but I was immediately convicted because there are so many things that I find joy in, that I look forward to or put my hope in, rather than the kinds of things that God wants us to rejoice. And I'm not saying, God wants us to enjoy the, the little gifts of life, a beautiful sunrise, the, the laughter of your children, a flower and bloom. I'm not saying that it's wrong to enjoy those things. But you see, Jonah was, was so mixed up in his mind that, that he, he, the only place in this story that he derived, we see him getting joy is, is in this little moment of, Self-centered pleasure. You know, I wonder, I wonder how many things there are in our life that, that we get more excited about than people coming to Jesus. 
I wonder how many things that I get excited about that I could talk about, that I could uh, uh, have conversations about, that I could reflect on, that I'm like, oh, I'm so looking forward to this. I mean, if I get more excited about looking forward to a great meal coming up or my bowl of ice cream before bed than I do about my neighbor coming to Christ, my priorities are way skewed. God longs for us to long for the things that he longs for. And Jonah is just not getting it. Jonah finds his happiness in a shade tree. Jonah cared more about his little shade tree than he did about the souls of Nineveh. May we become passionate for that which God has passion, for souls, for furthering the kingdom of God. May we not let idols into our life that so occupy our thinking and our time and our money that we lose focus of what's truly eternal, what's truly important. God's going to say in verse 10, says, Jonah, you had compassion for this plant. You wept over it, Jonah. Your heart became attached to it. And when it died, it grieved you. What God's saying here, in essence, is you weep over plants, but my compassion is for people. May we have the heart of God. May we pray for the heart of God. And then the fourth thing we see here in this passage is that God's grace demands a response. God's grace demands a response. The last verse of the book goes like this. God says, so I may, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? He ends it with a question. This is such an abrupt ending. Does that bother you? It's like a, one of those, like a movie that you're waiting for a resolution, then all of a sudden the screen flashes blank and the credits begin to roll. And you're like, wait a minute, what just happened here? Where's the rest of the movie? You're like looking in the other pages here like, what? what? What's going on here? The story just ends just like that? We don't, Jonah doesn't even answer him. Just as a, by way of a little bit of trivia, there's only two books of the Bible that end with a question. The book of Jonah and the book of Nahum end with a question. And both books concern the city of Nineveh. Just, you can tuck that away for whatever purpose it may serve you in the future. I think that this is no accident. This book didn't get cut off. The, 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 this, the, the writer didn't just fall asleep and say, well, you know what, we, we missed the dead, yeah, I hit the deadline, so it's just going out like this. If we believe that God is sovereign over what he puts in the word of God and how he has spoken, we believe that God is intentional in the way that he inspired this book. And what I think he's doing is using a literary device to sort of leave us hanging with the question in our own minds. 
Our question is, what's Jonah going to do with God's grace? God cares so desperately about these lost souls. What's Jonah going to do? And I think God wants us to stop and ask ourselves, wait a minute. What am I going to do? How am I going to answer this question? Are there things that I care about far more than the salvation of my neighbor or lost family members or coworkers? Am I only concerned about receiving and taking in the grace of God for myself and receiving his little blessings like a shade tree on a, on a hot summer day? Or am I preoccupied with how to tell others about this scandalous grace? I think the book ends with a question because he wants us to answer it for ourselves. Should we not have compassion? Should our hearts not go out? Should we not be stirred and moved by those who desperately need the grace that we have so gladly received ourselves? You see, if, as we've suggested all along, that you and I are much more like Jonah than either of us would care to admit, then we're forced to ask the same question of ourselves that we wish to ask of Jonah You've been confronted by God's scandalous grace, a grace that you so willingly and delightfully receive, but is that grace genuinely changing my heart? You see, it's easy for us to pity the pitiable, but what about those who are not? It's easy to show compassion to a young child who is ill or a fledgling new Christian with their many questions, but what about the homeless addict? What about that bombastic jerk down the hall at your workplace or the convicted sex offender? So desperate in need of God's relentless grace. This grace truly is scandalous. This grace makes us uncomfortable. It makes us squirm in our seats. Not so much to receive it all the time, but to think about how God is calling us to give it, to dole it out. God's grace demands a response. As we conclude, I just want to finish with two glimpses of grace. The first one is the question that, I, I mean, I, I'm asking, I don't know if it is bothering you, but wondering, did, did Jonah ever get it? Like, did the light bulbs ever go on for him? Now, I don't have a definitive answer, but I, 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 have, I have an inkling, and you can disagree with me on this, that's fine. Um, one of the questions we never ans asked at the, in the very first message, and I always try to ask this whenever I'm doing an introduction to, to a book of the Bible, is who wrote this book? And I intentionally avoided that question with Jonah, because I knew we were going to bring it up here at the end. Who wrote the book of Jonah. Jewish tradition says that Jonah himself wrote this book. Now, people have disagreed with that. People have come up with other theories. But here's the thing. The thing with prophets, it, prophets is they, they wrote their own books or they had a scribe like Jeremiah and Baruch right next to them who were writing down their words and they orchestrated the compilation of their prophecies into the book. 
It was, it, it, as far as we know, out of any of the major and minor prophets, nobody recorded and wrote those books two, three, four hundred years after th- that person lived. By all accounts, every other prophet wrote their own material. I'm inclined to believe the same is true of Jonah. Now, if that's true, think about this for a second. I mean, who, who else knew these stories? Who else knew what was going on in his heart and mind? Who else knew about what happened in the bottom of the sea? Now think about it for a second. What kind of humility does it take to tell such an utterly embarrassing story about yourself? It takes the kind of humility that has finally been broken down by the God of grace. It takes the kind of person who says, you know what, I don't care if I look like a fool in here. I'm, I'm going to tell the story of how God came after me. You see, people who are truly changed by grace, we, you don't have to worry about looking like a fool because you know the truth. You know that you're a sinner and you deserve what the Ninevites deserve. You know you deserve God's wrath. And you know that you've done some very foolish things along the way. Maybe some really wicked things along the way. And you deserve eternal separation from God. But when our hearts are truly gripped by grace, the the false front can come down, the pretenses can be put aside. And you can say, look, I know that I'm a wreck. I can talk about amazing grace. Once I was a sinner... This amazing grace saved a wretch like me. Tim Keller has said, what kind of man would let the world see what a fool he was? Only someone who had become joyfully secure in God's love. If God's grace can change Jonah, it can change anyone. There's no one outside the hope and the power of God's grace. Whether you're sitting in here this morning wondering that, or whether someone is in your mind that you've prayed for for perhaps decades, do not give up. God, in his grace, he's pursuing. Just like he did with Jonah, he's pursuing. The final picture of grace that I I want to point us to as we close here this morning is that this isn't the last time Jonah is mentioned in the scriptures. We alluded to it one week, a few weeks back, but Jesus was speaking to the crowds in Matthew chapter 12, and it said, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater then Jonah is here. 
You see, you and I, in all of our desperate need for God's grace, just like Jonah, we've ran from God's grace, we've spurned God's grace, we've looked the other direction and ran the other direction, and God has pursued us. But you see, ultimately, there was only one who could fix our sin problem. There was only one who could take the wrath that Nineveh deserved, that Jonah deserved, that you and I deserved. And once for all, pay that price. If indeed Jonah came around and began to be miraculously transformed by God's grace, he turned out to be a great prophet. One day, hundreds of years later, another man would stand in that same corner of the world and declare, there is someone here who is greater than Jonah. Even the best of the best still cannot, cannot measure up to what God demands. We needed someone greater than Jonah, someone greater than Moses, someone greater than Abraham, someone greater than David. We need Jesus Christ. And Jonah points us to the fact that God's grace has pursued and pursued and pursued us all the way to where God made a provision for us. In the same vein that God sent a whale to save Jonah, that becomes a picture of the rescue mission that God the Father sent his son upon to save sinners like you and me. Someone greater than Jonah has come. And Jesus says there in that passage that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or this great fish, so the Son of the Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So Jesus' death and resurrection is pictured in Jonah's descent to the deeps in his resurrection. This morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table. What a, what a great ending to the book of Jonah. As we're reminded the extent to which God's grace pursues us. This bread that we're about to partake, this juice that we're about to have this morning, reminds us that it took the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of God's relentless grace, in order to save you and me. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, we too can walk in newness of life. If that's you this morning, if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to celebrate communion with us. If you haven't had communion here before, in just a moment, we're going to pray, and our worship team's going to lead us in a final song, and then we want to just invite you to uh, come forward, and we'll have... Uh, that we have three different stations here. You can grab some bread and, and to, uh, uh, some juice. If, if you need uh, gluten-free bread, we have that here at the center station. And we want to invite you to celebrate the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with us. Jesus said that as he celebrated that last supper, that final night before his crucifixion with the disciples, he calls us to do this in remembrance of him. This isn't simply a, a tradition that the early church started, 
but that Jesus Christ himself has instituted this, not only as a memorial, but as a, a way to receive that spiritual nourishment. They can only come as God's people gather together and celebrate this, the Lord's table. We also look forward to that day when we will celebrate it with him. And I think with Jonah, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This morning, my prayer is that God's scandalous grace has caught up with you. Whether you're a, a follower of his, like Jonah, a prophet of God, who is running, God's calling you home. Or as someone who has never before encountered the grace of God, I pray that today is the day that your heart is gripped by his outrageous love for you. Let's just take a moment and bow our heads. I, I want to just give you a chance to talk to the Lord about what he's speaking to you about as we, as we get ready to take the Lord's table together. And then I'll, I'll pray after a moment of quiet. In your word here, Lord, you have reminded us in chapter 2, verse 9 of Jonah, that salvation is from the Lord. It's only through you that we can be saved. It's only through Jesus Christ that our hearts can be genuinely changed. It's only through your relentless grace, your scandalous grace, that our sin and resistance can be overcome. This morning, let our hearts be melted in a fresh way over this scandalous grace. May we marvel at your love for us. May we marvel at the riches of your kindness poured out towards us in Jesus Christ. He's taken upon himself our sin. And as he conquered, defeated death, by rising again from the grave. Oh Lord, wow us and amaze us in a fresh way with your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come. Amazing grace, how sweet Pray. 
Let's pray together, shall we? What a privilege, Lord, to be here this morning to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and to sing it over and over and over again till we all took part in communion with you. Not going to forget this right away, Lord. Help all of our businesses to be right with our neighbor, our friends, our family. Because, Lord, uh, we don't want to take communion and uh, not be right. Not be right with our neighbors. And especially not be right with you. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the one who died to pay for our sins. And we celebrate our communion with him today, O oh Lord. And we ask that you'd be with us as we go from this place and realize what a wonderful service this has been. And thanking Jesus all the way for what he's done for us. Because we pray it in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. 